Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. And if you would, let's take out the Word of God and turn in it in the New Testament to the book of Acts and chapter number 15. Acts 15, if you don't have a Bible with you, there'll be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible out and turn to page 105, and you would find yourself parked at Acts chapter 15. I was thinking this week how fascinating it would be if we would do a people-on-the-street survey here in Norman. We would do one of those word association surveys, like when you hear this word, what comes to your mind? And the focus of that survey, if we were to do it, would be around the word grace. When you hear the word grace, what comes to your mind? Now, if we were going to do that in Norman America, no doubt when we mention the word grace, some people would say, well, when I think of grace, I, I think of wide receiver Sterling Shepard from OU and the football team and the tremendous grace and agility that he shows as he's able to tightrope along the sideline and still catch the ball. Some people might say, well, when I hear the word grace, I I think of a dancer, someone who's very athletic, very nimble, and the grace that they show as they make their moves as a dancer. Some people maybe would say, well, when when I hear the word grace, I think about what we do just before we eat, uh, that we say grace. Some people might say, well, when you mention grace, I I think about this girl. I think about this blue-eyed neighbor who lives over here whose name is, is Grace. And by the way, we have at least nine graces here at Wildwood Community Church. Maybe someone would say this when they hear the word grace. Well, that's something you, I think that's something you hear about at church. Some people might say, well, when I hear the word grace, I think of the great American song, Amazing Grace. But when you really, if we were to ask people to define what does grace mean biblically, what does the grace of God mean, I think we would find out that people's responses were fairly ambiguous. In fact, I have seen over the years that the concept of grace from a Bible perspective is frequently misunderstood. So we're going to talk some about grace today, and I want to begin by just giving us a very simple definition of grace. Here is grace defined in a simple way. Grace is God's generous, undeserved goodness. That is grace. That's what the grace of God is, his generous, undeserved goodness to us. It's not based on something that we do. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on merit. God's grace is unearned. The title I've given to the message today is Strengthening the Grip on Grace. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 15 and also chapter 16. Now, we're not going to cover everything in those chapters, but I do want to highlight three things. Number one, I want to highlight grace and salvation from chapter 15 in the first 31 verses. And then we're going to highlight grace and disagreements in chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. And then the final thing I want to highlight as we look at these chapters is grace and a pagan jailer in chapter 16, verses 16 to 34. So the first thing we want to highlight from this section is grace and salvation. Let your eyes go to chapter 15 and verse 1. What was happening? 
Well, verse 1 tells us that some men came down from Judea, and they began teaching the brethren, this is those who were in Antioch, and they were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And it tells us in verse 2 that Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them. And the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others should then go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. We need to get this cleared up. Now, what we see happening here in chapter 15 is a very pivotal event in the life of the early church. Remember, we are going backwards in time to learn from our predecessors in the faith. And what really unfolds here in this part of chapter 15 is a controversy over the issue of grace and salvation. Some decade later, Paul wrote some words that are very familiar to us that are found in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, that I think grew out of this whole scenario, where he writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, we learn from verse 1 of chapter 15 that some men came down to Antioch from Judea. I think we get a greater insight as to who these men were from verse 5. It there mentions that some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed in Jesus as Savior stood up. These Pharisees, by training, who had trusted in Christ, we're saying to the Gentile believers, it is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, I just want to set a little bit of background to feel the ambiance of what's going on here. We have some men trained as Pharisees, the highest level of Jewish training that you can get. They were Christians who trusted in Christ. They were Jewish believers. And to them, in their world, Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. And to them, the kingdom of God was synonymous with the kingdom of Israel. And as they looked at things from their viewpoint, Christianity and the church was not a new thing. It was a fulfilled thing. It was a continuing and a deepening of their Jewishness. And as more and more Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ, no doubt there were new Gentile believers who began to show up at the synagogue on a regular basis. And this created a little angst for them. You know, Jews were taught from infancy when they were very little that Gentiles are unclean, ceremonially unclean. They are infected with idolatry. And we as Jews are to remain separate from them. That's their training from when they're very little. And it's not a large logical jump to begin to think how they were thinking. They were thinking that if these Gentile believers trust in Messiah Jesus, what they need to do then, because they're really fulfilling what Judaism is all about, they need to ad adopt the Jewish practices. They need to become Jews. It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, listen, we read that in our day and we don't realize what a radical membership commitment they were talking about. 
I mean, can you imagine if you're a Gentile and you come to Christ and the first thing they tell you is, you got to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, man, that's a radical commitment. I mean, that's surgery in a very sensitive area of our body. You must be circumcised in order to be saved. You need to be more like us as fulfilled Jews. Plus, you need to start observing the law of Moses and those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules that are there. Now, that's what they were saying and communicating. Why, in verse 2, do Paul and Barnabas give great dissension and debate to this? Why? You know, the very same thing has sought to infiltrate the church over all the centuries from the time of Paul and Barnabas up to today, and even today. It's an insidious thing, a a twisting of the salvation message. Basically, the message goes like this. In order to be saved, you must trust in Christ and what he did, plus there's something else that you are to do. That's what they were saying in that day. And we have people who believe and say the same thing today. Oh, yes, you want to trust in what Christ has done, but then also you must faithfully attend church. If you really want to be saved, you have to faithfully attend church. You don't miss. You're there every Sunday. Or maybe people say, yes, it's Christ and what he did, but it's also that you need to make sure you're taking the sacraments on a regular basis. If you fail to take the sacraments on a regular basis, you really can't be saved. Some people will say, yeah, it's Christ, what he did, plus you need to live a good life. I mean, it's not just trusting in Christ and then doing whatever you want. You have to live this good life. Or maybe it's trusting in Christ, plus you have to also help the downtrodden. When you help the downtrodden, then you really know that you have salvation. That's what they were introducing. And we see that Paul and Barnabas gave great dissension and debate to that. Why? Well, on one level, it is... When you talk about Christ plus something else you have to do in order to be saved, it is on one level an assault on the work of the cross. It's saying basically the work on the cross is inadequate. It's saying that the work on the cross is disappointing in some manner, so we need to add something to it for salvation. On one level, it's an assault on the work of the cross. On another level, it's a nullification of the concept of grace. Remember, grace is unearned. Grace is unmerited. Later on, Paul clarifies this in the book of Romans in chapter 11, verse 6, when he says, if it is by grace, if it's by God's generous, undeserved goodness, then it can no longer be on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. When you take generous, undeserved goodness, and then you add something that you do to get that, it's like oil and water being mixed together. In Galatians, particularly in chapters 1 and 2, Paul is writing about this very era that we're in in Acts 15. And he says in Galatians 2.21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, you could read that works, things that we do in addition to the cross, then Christ died needlessly. And so what we see them doing here, and that's why they're so ferocious, is that they are guarding and defending the gospel message. 
So they have this great dissension and debate, and then the suggestion is made in the latter part of verse 2 that they go up to Jerusalem where the apostles are. Remember, the apostles are really the authoritative group who had been with Jesus for three years. Let's go up to the apostles and let's get this whole thing settled. Let's settle it all down. And as the gathering happens there in Jerusalem, verse 7 tells us that there was much debate that went on. Now, whenever you have a dispute, and it could be a dispute in your family, a dispute on your job, a dispute in the church, here's a good principle. When there is a dispute, let people express themselves. And that's exactly what happened. Both sides had an opportunity to express themselves. This is the way we're viewing things. And then after this much debate occurred, there's three different groups of people who stand up and speak. The first one is the Apostle Peter in verses 7 to 11. And what Peter does as he gets up to speak is he's looking at the very recent past of what had happened, going back to Acts chapter 10 when the gospel message came to the Gentiles. And I want you to just notice the thrust of what Peter's saying as he's looking at what happened in the very recent past. He says in verse 7 that God, it was God who sent the gospel message to the Gentiles and they embraced it. In verse 8, he says, God sent them the Holy Spirit. And in verse 9, he says, and God removed the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. And then he makes a very interesting statement, at least to me, in verse 10. He says, now, therefore, why do you, talking to these believing Pharisees, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples, these Gentile believers, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He's basically saying this, hey, listen, we as Jews don't keep the law consistently ourselves. Why would we erect that as a standard for them? He understood, Peter did, the purpose of the law. See, the law was designed to demonstrate man's sinfulness and man's need of salvation. It was never designed to be a way of salvation. So then, as Peter looks at this recent past, he makes a summary statement in verse 11. He says, but we believe that we Jews are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they, the Gentiles, also are. The second group that gets up is Paul and Barnabas in, in verse 12. And while Peter looked at what happened in the recent past, they just re report the work at present, but it just happened among the Gentiles. And then the third person who gets up in verse 13 is James. Just to remind you, James was the half-brother, same mother, half-brother of Jesus. He's also the author of the book of James. And when James stands up, while Peter sort of looked at the recent past and Paul and Barnabas re reported on what had just presently happened, James looks forward to a resolution of these issues. And there's two, two legs to this resolution. The first one is the theological issue of salvation. And he addresses the theological issue of salvation in verses 16 to 19. And when he does in those verses, he quotes from the Old Testament book of Amos, 
where it emphasizes that in the future, at the return of Christ, the Gentiles will receive salvation without becoming Jews. Therefore, he is concluding that it is not outside the plan of God for Gentiles to believe in Jesus now. So again, he's addressing this theological issue of salvation. And notice what he says regarding this in verse 19. He said, it is my judgment that we, believing Jewish people, do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. I think the NIV says that we do not make it difficult for those Gentiles who are coming to faith. That that little verb is a, a, a verb that just means extra difficult. Basically, what James was saying regarding the theological issue of salvation was this. We're going to let salvation by grace through faith stand. That is the decision. Now, it's important for us to understand, this was an incredible pivot point in the early church. If they didn't ferociously resist, the gospel of the grace of God would have been polluted. So he first addresses the theological issue of salvation. The second thing he does, though, is he addresses this relational issue among believers in verses 20 and 21. There's a relational thing going on here because you have these Jews with all their training and everything that was inculcated in their thinking, and then they're beginning to mix with Gentile people, and there's very different practices involved in all of that. So regarding the relational issue among Gentile and Jewish believers mixing together even over meals, he basically says to the Gentile believers, you should take a Galatians 5.13 approach. In other words, through love, serve one another. Or we could say he takes a 1 Corinthians 10.24 approach with them, where as the New Living Translation says, don't only think of your own good, think of other Christians in what is best for them. So basically he says to everybody, we're going to let salvation by grace through faith stand. But regarding the Gentiles, we want you to be sensitive to your Jewish brothers and sisters. And so he gives them a list of four things they are to abstain from. The list occurs in verse 20. It's repeated in verse 29, shows up again in chapter 21 and verse 25. And, And here's the idea. We need to ease the tension between Jewish and Gentile believers. We want to promote peace among you. So we're going to ask you to do four things. Number one, to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. Now, now what he's talking about there is that in the pagan worship, they would do these sacrifices, and they would sacrifice animals, but they didn't throw away the meat. What they would do is they'd have a discount shop that would exist where the meat that was left over from the sacrifices would be sold, and you could get quite a bargain on that. And basically what he's saying to them is, hey, don't buy your meat down there and be inviting your Jewish brothers and sisters over because it just bothers them deep in their soul because of their training. He says, I want you secondly to abstain from fornication. This is probably a reference to the temple prostitution practices that were deeply institutionalized in Gentile culture. He says, I want you thirdly to abstain from something strangled. Uh, That really means that it would be meat where the blood was not drained from it, which was the Jewish practice to drain the blood. And then fourthly, he says, I want you to 
abstain from blood. Not really sure what he's referring to here. Maybe the drinking of blood in some sort of a pagan institutionalized culture manner. We're not exactly sure. Salvation by grace through faith, it stands. It's not Christ plus circumcision or Christ plus keeping the law. But we do want you to do these four things in order to ease tension and promote peace among brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want you to notice the impact that all of this brings down in verses 30 and 31 as they bring the letter down. They go back down to Antioch and they enter the congregation and they deliver the letter. And when they, the Gentile believers, read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. But what we learn from this is it is very, very vital to guard the gospel of grace. We must guard the gospel of grace. Now, the second thing we wanted to highlight in these chapters as we strengthen the grip on grace is grace and disagreements. And we see that in chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. Anyone here, let me see some hands this morning, all right? Anyone here have disagreements? All right, yeah, come on, I want to see more hands than that. Let's just get honest, all right. We all know what disagreements are about. And what's actually happening in this part of chapter 15 is that beginning with verse 36 is the second missionary journey of Paul. Last time we looked at the first missionary journey of Paul. Remember I said the missionary journeys of Paul changed the world more than anything else. This is the beginning of the second missionary journey. It carries on from 1536 to 18, chapter 18, verse 22. Grace and disagreements. And before we even get into it, I want to make this short statement. Conflict is inevitable. As long as you have people that are living and breathing, you will have disagreements. Conflict is inevitable. But combat is optional. Very important thing to remember as we have disagreements. Well, let's take a look at the conflict. Look at verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, I like to call him Barney, hey, Barney, let us return and visit the brothers and sisters in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord. Let's go see how they are. Let's get a second journey going. And before, before they could lay out their itinerary on MapQuest before they could make the reservations, before they could buy their tickets on the boat or whatever else, guess what happens? There's a disagreement. In verse 37, it says, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. Now remember, John Mark had been with him at the beginning of the first missionary journey, but then he, as Paul's words later, deserted them. And it says that he wanted to take along John Mark. The structure in the original language is not that just he expressed this one time, but he did this over and over again. I want to take Mark. 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 I want to take John Mark with me. I want to take John Mark. He repeatedly expressed that in his interaction with Paul. Paul's response, verse 38. But Paul kept on insisting, again, the idea is repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. He kept on insisting over and over again they should take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. 
He was a flunky. Don't want him. Don't want him at all. Leslie Flynn, who's a, one of my favorite pastors and, and, and a great writer, he kind of imagines the interchange between Barney and Paul going something like this. Starts off with Barney. Hey, let's take Mark. Paul, Mark, we can't take him. He failed us last time. Barney, well, wait a minute. That was last time. This is this time. Paul, well, he's likely to fail us again. Yeah, he's a deserter. Barnabas. He's had time to think it over, Paul. We, we've got to give him a, another chance. I think he's got the makings to be a great missionary. Paul. Now tell me, Barnabas, let's just be truthful here. Isn't it just because he's your cousin that you want to take him along again? Barney, hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. Time out for just a minute. You know I've tried to help many people who aren't related to me. Don't tell me it's because he's related to me. I'm just convinced he needs some understanding and encouragement. I think he could be, I really do think he could be a great evangelist someday. Paul, hey, look, we need someone who can stand up to persecution, stand up to an angry mob, beatings, even jail perhaps. We need a team that's close-knit, that's thoroughly reliable. How can we trust someone who failed like Mark? No. Watch my lips move, Barnabas. No. We're not going to do it at all. By the way, Barney, do you recall the words of the master? How no man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God? Uh Uh-huh. Do you remember that one? Barnabas, hey, look, I've talked to him about his failure. I'm sure he won't defect again. To refuse to use him could do spiritual damage to him because he's learning from his mistake. What's really going on here between Paul and Barnabas? Well, what is interesting, and this often happens in disagreements, is that they actually have different viewpoints on things. See, Paul's focus in this whole disagreement was on what was good for ministry. He was asking the question, what what might Mark do for God's work if he came on this trip? That's where his focus was. What's good for the ministry? And he concluded, we don't need someone who is unreliable. I don't know that this happened at all, but I could imagine that he might have also quoted to Barnabas, Proverbs 25, 19, which says, putting confidence in an unreliable person is like chewing with a toothache or walking with a broken foot. His focus was on what was good for the ministry. But Barnabas had a different viewpoint on this. His focus was on what was good for the person. He was asking the question, how might God work in Mark's life through this trip? And no doubt, I have no doubt that Barney reminded Paul, saying, hey, 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 wait a minute here. Don't you remember when I helped you? 
Remember when I helped you? Remember when people were avoiding you after your conversion? Chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. Remember how everyone was just trying to avoid you completely? And I'm the one who stepped up and I helped you? Now I want to help Mark. Two totally different viewpoints. But, verse 39... They didn't really understand, I don't think, one another's viewpoints, and there was a sharp disagreement. And the result was they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away in one direction to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord, and they traveled off through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, here's the most important thing, most vital thing to to remember from all of this. The the most vital thing is not that they had a disagreement. We all have disagreements. The most vital thing is how they handled the disagreement. I want you to notice that they did not allow this disagreement to escalate into a war. It's important what they did not do. They didn't have a disagreement and then seek to go out and garner support. Well, I'm going to just talk to you as many people as I can around here in Antioch, and I'm going to get them on my side, and oh, I'm going to do the same thing, you know, and just let's line up all the supporters and have this massive war that goes on. They didn't do that at all. In fact, in order for us to learn some from this, I want to make four observations about disagreements, all right? Are you ready? Here they come. Observation number one about disagreements is that disagreements are inevitable. They're just inevitable. We're going to have them. We're going to have disagreements over what's the right school choice to make for your kids. Do you send them to public school, send them to Christian school, do you homeschool? We're going to have disagreements about which political party we should support. We're going to have disagreements about what our preferences are musically. We're going to have disagreements over the proper use for a spiritual believer of credit cards. We're going to have disagreements over tattoos and piercings. We're going to have disagreements over the issue of working moms. Should they, should they not? We're going to have disagreements over celebrations of certain holidays. How should we celebrate them or not celebrate them like a holiday that's coming up at the end of this month. We're going to have disagreements over future prophetic events. We're going to have disagreements over the proper spiritual thing when it comes to watching TV and movies. We're going to even have disagreements over what the proper spiritual diet is for a true believer in Christ. We're just going to have disagreements. Disagreements are inevitable. But the second observation I want to make is this. Not all disagreements are created equal. You know, if, if we're going to have a disagreement over the nature of salvation, whether it's by grace, through faith alone, that's going to be a significant disagreement. If we begin to have a disagreement about the integrity of the Word of God, that is a big-time disagreement. If we're going to have a disagreement about the deity of Christ, was he God or not God, those are really significant disagreements, certainly worthy of separating over those things. But not all disagreements are created equal. And so if we're having a lesser level of disagreement, one of the things we need to do is do we need to allow for there to be alternative opinions. And too often, here's what our tendency is. And I think you see it right here. Too often our tendency is to view the disagreement only through our own eyes. And too often our our, our need is for some you know, eye drops of humility to really try to understand the other viewpoint. 
Which leads us to the third observation I want to make, which is this. When possible, dealing with some of these lesser disagreements, seek understanding and resolution. This is the one step I really feel like they skipped. I mean, they could have done something like this. Paul could have said, okay, okay, okay. I understand you're more focused on the person. You want to encourage him. He's trying to make a comeback. Let's do this. We'll take Mark along for one month on probation. We'll see how he does. I mean, Paul could have done that. You know, you know, Barnabas could have said, I understand where you're coming from. You need reliability. Let's take Silas as the primary member who goes with us. We'll take Mark along, and he'll have a very minor role maybe, but we'll give him an opportunity. They could have done that, but they didn't do that. When possible, seek understanding and resolution. Fourth observation, when it's not possible, and they, they didn't come to that, be kind and peaceable. In other words, disagree without being disagreeable. Have a disagreement, but get over it and get on with life. What's really fascinating to me is that's really the way they handled this. They disagreed without really ultimately being disagreeable, and they just got on with life and ministry. And later on, you know the story is that Paul valued John Mark. Colossians 4.10 says, he is a great help to me. And five years after this happened, we learned this from 1 Corinthians 9.6, it appears that Barnabas rejoined Paul in his mission. So, when it's not possible to have understanding and resolution, we need to be kind and peaceable. To disagree, tell me if this isn't true, to disagree especially with someone we care about, is discouraging, right? To disagree is discouraging, but it need not be paralyzing. Now, the third thing we want to highlight very quickly as we get a strengthening of our grip on grace is grace in a pagan jailer. And we find this in chapter 16, verses 16 to 34. There's a whole lot more happening in these chapters. We're just highlighting a few things. Now, when you come to chapter 16 and verse 16, a little backdrop, they're on the second missionary journey, and they find themselves in a place called Thyatira. And while they are there, we learn in verse 16, there there was a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. She was basically inhabited by a demon. And notice she had some handlers And these handlers were using her to make a lot of profit by fortune-telling. And basically, this young girl who had this demon was a walking magic eight ball. You remember the magic eight ball that came out years ago? I don't know if you ever saw one. But you take the magic eight ball and you would kind of shake it up and then you turn it over and a certain answer would flip up on the bottom. You know, tell you what you ought to do or what you ought to think. Well, that's sort of what she was. Except, you know, she had perhaps some legitimacy because she was inhabited by a demon. And their handlers were making a lot of money off of her. We learned that from verse 16. They were making much profit. A lot of dough was coming to them. Hey, you want an answer to where you ought to go and who you ought to marry and what job you ought to go to and what's going to happen to you tomorrow? Come to her and we'll kind of shake the magic eight ball up and she'll give you an answer. They're making a lot of cash from all of that. Well, at the end of verse 18... Paul commands the demon to come out of her. 
And notice her handlers, verse 19, get ticked off. They saw that their hope of profit was gone. I mean, we're not making money anymore. He's just ruined her. You know, real nice guys. All the money's thrown out the window. So if you follow the story, you get down to verse 22, and so they basically get this people, a mob stirred up, and they tear the clothes right off of Paul and Barnabas. And it says there in verse 22, they were beaten with rods. This is really what we call in our day and age caning. By the way, caning in those days was done by individuals who were called lictors. You ever heard the phrase in English, getting your licks in? It comes from this. And so they are caned. And then we learn in verse 23, after they'd struck them with these many blows, they threw them into prison, threw them into the jail, and they commanded the jailer to take care of these guys. By the way, jailers in that day were retired military guys. They knew how to take care of people. And what he does, this jailer, is he throws uh, um, Paul and Silas into the inner prison, which really means, it's just a nice phrase for saying, into the stinky hole in the basement. So they're thrown, they're, they're caned, and they're thrown down into the stinky hole in the basement. And then something very interesting happens, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. <laughs> That's just not the normal response you would expect to see, Right? In the midst of all of their problems, in the midst of of being caned and the pain that came with that and being arrested and thrown down into the smelly hole, the worst place to be in the jail, they are praising God and they're singing hymns of praise to God. Now, how is that happening? Well, it brings us back to grace. Paul later is going to relate how God said to him, you know, my grace is sufficient for you. No matter what position I put you in, what place I put you in, I will always give you the grace for the place. This is a living example of it right here. And they had divine perspective. They were thinking, you know what? God is in control. God is still on the throne. God has a plan. I didn't like being caned. I don't like being thrown into a stinky cellar room. But God has a plan in all this, and he is still in control. And so they are praising God and praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And then verse 26, suddenly there's this earthquake, and it's just shaking the whole place. In fact, someone said their singing was so powerful it brought the house down. Yeah, I know. Just checking to see if you're still with me. So, so basically, everything's broken up in the jail, and verse 27, the jailer wakes up, and he sees the prison doors are open, and he takes out his sword, and he was about to kill himself. Why would he do that? Because if you allow prisoners to escape, that's exactly what would happen to you. You're going to be executed, and he says, you know what, I'd rather take my own life than go through what they're going to do to me. You know, as I'm reading through this, this is really interesting to me to think about. Who is the real prisoner in this story? The real prisoner is the jailer. He is a prisoner to his own sin. He is a prisoner to the judgment of God. Well, he's about to kill himself, and Paul goes, whoa, 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 don't do that. We're all still here. We haven't gone anywhere. 
Well, they're in this shaky facility, so they all go outside. And, and you'll notice it says, um, verse 30, after he, the jailer, brought them out, he said to Silas and to Paul, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, that little word do in the original language is in the present tense, which doesn't mean something I just do once, but something I need to be doing over and over again. Basically, what he was saying to Paul and to Silas is, give me the to-do list. I'm ready for it now. Give me the list of all the to-dos that I have to do. Tell me everything I have to do to work my way into being right with God. I'm ready for it. I'm ready to start. Just tell me what the list is. But notice the response back to him, very familiar verse in verse 31. Together they said to him, here's what you need to do. Believe, not a repetitive over and over and over, but in a point in time, you believe in the Lord Jesus. You place your faith and trust in him. And you will be saved, you will be delivered, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you and anybody else who believes in the Lord Jesus will be saved. What you need to do is not a list of to-do things, whatever that list may be. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus. You need to place your faith and your reliance on who he is and what he did on your behalf. They were basically saying to him, listen, Jesus is the one who has the authority to forgive you. Jesus is the one who's the divine dispenser of salvation. And Mr. Jailer, it comes to you by grace. It's God's generous, undeserved goodness. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, Paul put it this way. He says, to the one who does not work, to the one who doesn't try to keep this list of to-dos, whatever it may be, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, here's what's interesting to me. Do you know that we all have jailers around us? We all have people around us who are spiritual prisoners to their own sin. They may be in your neighborhood. They may be at school. They may be at work. We all have spiritual prisoners who are prisoners to the judgment of God. Could be your neighbor, someone you know at work or school. And here's what's important to remember. God has prepared them, some of them, to hear the message. And what is our responsibility in that situation? Well, verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. The spiritual prisoners need to hear the gospel message. They need to be told of it. Now, we've covered a lot of ground this morning, a lot of ground. I want to try to tie it all together. I want to talk about some specific life response that we can all have based on what we've seen this morning. Three things. Number one, this is what we need to do by way of life response. We need to guard the gospel of grace. Men and women, that's part of our calling. We need to fight ferociously and stand up against attempts to make the message of Christ plus something else. It's not Christ plus something else. And we need to guard the gospel of grace. Second thing by way of life response is we need to proclaim the gospel of grace. Again, we've got spiritual prisoners all around us. 
What does God want us to do? To speak to them the word of the Lord so that they can hear about how they can be free. And then by way of life response, if you've never yet trusted in Christ, I would say this. You need to embrace the gospel of grace by faith. Jesus is the one who has the authority to forgive. Being forgiven is the most wonderful thing in all of the world. Jesus is the one who bled and died in your place. And if you haven't yet embraced that message, do it today. Let's pray together. Father, we just really want to thank you again for the word of God. We thank you for the opportunity we have to go back and visit our ancestors, our spiritual ancestors, and learn from them. We would pray that we would be among those who are the ones who guard the gospel of grace in a ferocious manner. We would pray that we would be the ones with the prisoners that are all around us who proclaim the gospel of grace. If they don't hear it from us, who else are they going to hear it from? And Father, for any who are here who've never yet embraced Christ by faith, we would pray they would do that today, this very morning. Father, we thank you that you have transformed us by grace. We thank you that it's because of grace we know that you love us. Because of grace we know that you are for us. And wow, a person can run from God. They can never outrun God. We would pray that everyone who hears this message today might choose to trust in Christ. And we pray these things in his name. 